Wonderful, wonderful, great news. And so amazing, our time of praise this morning. In the psalm, in Psalm 40, verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted, or the Lord be magnified. Amen? Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. It's been a, a pure delight to gather together this morning and to lift up praises to you, to remind ourselves through lyric, through song, how great you are, how you are to be magnified, how you are to be exalted, O oh God. You are a great God, a saving God, and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue in this service to be praised, to be exalted. You would help us now as we uh, turn our attention to your word, Father. I pray that you would uh, probe deep into our hearts and examine them and cause us to examine our lives, Lord, that we might truly be people who bring honor and glory to you in the way that we live, in the way that we think, the way that we believe, <clears throat> oh God. May we, uh, may we truly, truly recognize the glorious thing we have in salvation through Jesus Christ. And may our lives fully reflect it as we give over um, to the power and presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Lord, we have been singing this morning that the grave has no hold on us, that we are people of eternal life. May we truly rejoice in what you have granted to us, and may we truly love you with all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, have you ever bought a knockoff? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe if you don't, guys, let me just say this, that if you bought your wife a Louis Vuitton bag for $75, you probably have purchased a knockoff. Or if you're sporting Chloe glasses and you only paid 50 bucks for them, there's a pretty good chance that they are not actually the real thing. And so we, we live in a world of knockoffs and wannabes and pretend and all that kind of stuff. And uh, in fact, I, I went searching for some of the images of, of things that are, are knockoffs. We have some pictures for you of wannabes and all that kind of stuff and what they look like. <clears throat> yeah, that, that will taste good, I'm sure. There you go. Pizza roof, arm and hatchet. How about sunbucks? I don't know what that is. Dave Soap. Who knew? Crust. That's what you want on your teeth. Spot the difference. That's a tough one. That's a good knockoff right there. Sub day. Sub day. There you go. So there they are, some knockoffs. Um, in fact, uh, believe it or not, there are studies done on these things in universities. In uh, 2012, three university professors got together and did a a study on what knockoffs, or what wearing knockoffs, say about us. And uh, from Duke University, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a Harvard Business School, if you can imagine, got together, and they gave a group of female subjects a series of tests while they were wearing Chloe glasses. And, um, of course, they informed each of the girls whether they were wearing a real set of glasses or a knockoff set, okay? 
And again and again, researchers found that those in the knockoff glasses were more prone to dishonesty and lying. Can you imagine? In one test, subjects were asked to complete a math puzzle and grade themselves privately, knowing they'd be paid more for a higher score. Guess what happened? Fully 70% of the girls wearing fake glasses inflated their results while only 30% of those wearing real glasses fudged their numbers. In another study, ranking ethical behavior of others with fake glasses, those in fake glasses judged other people more harshly than those in real glasses, perceiving high levels of dishonesty and cheating in others, as if their lenses were clouded with cynicism. True stuff, guys. Harvard Business School, North, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Duke University. My question for you this morning is whether or not you are the real Jesus brand or actually a knockoff. And there are ways to know the difference. <clears throat> Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.23 that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so out of this... Um, uh, introduction this morning in terms of Jesus brand or religious knockoffs, I have three big questions for you to consider and ponder as you're thinking through what we have to share today. To the people who mingle close to your life, the people who hang out with you, are you all Jesus brand or are you just a religious knockoff? Second, does your lifestyle bring much glory to Christ? Third, do you know what a Jesus brand should even be like? Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 this morning, please? Mark chapter 12, as we continue on moving our way through the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at three vignettes in a few moments. But uh, Jesus got himself into a brand discussion during his last week here on earth. And um, I, I guess before we get into that, we should, uh, we should ask the question about whether or not you believe we should be growing as believers. And, and, and frankly, I, I don't think there's anybody who would call themselves a Christian that would disagree with the idea that Christians should be growing. We, we absolutely should be growing. In fact, there's lots of texts that teach us this, but, but a, few of the, a couple of the really known ones. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander and ev of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. I don't know if you've hung out with babies at all, but they are into milk. They want it. They are craving it all the time. They are, and they grow like weeds as they, as they partake. And, and um, Peter goes on to say... At the end of his epistle, in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, but grow, this is a command, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. In fact, there's humongous dangers to us if we are not growing. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, and... Um, Verses 12, 13, and 14, 
the writer there writes this, see to it, brothers, sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In other words, it is possible or it wouldn't be written. But encourage one another every single day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Over and over, over again in the scriptures, we're warned about the, the fact that growing is, not growing is incredibly dangerous for us. John Piper writes this, that ordinary Christian living is depleting. We don't live on yesterday's mercies, do we? We do not. We live on, because every day his mercies are new to us. Great is his faithfulness, right? You can't live on yesterday's mercies. In Galatians 5, 17, we are warned there that our old nature is constantly at war against us. We find out in Ephesians 6, verse 13, that we need to make certain that we are growing and trusting in the Lord, that we might be able to stand when the day of evil comes. So it is absolutely necessary that Christians continue to be growing and moving forward in their faith. And, and I, I've jotted this down. The average Christian, I believe, is suffering from malnourishment of the soul due to malpractice of their salvation. We're going to unpack that a little bit more as we move through this, this uh, uh, sermon, um, but it, it is related to the unintentional, inattention, and malnourishment of the spiritual life that's been granted you in Christ Jesus. And at issue for Christians who are struggling to grow is two realities. And if you get this and you understand this, your life can move forward in, in quite remarkable ways. At issue is correct motivation and correct methodology. These two things we get crossed up, we, we mess up. And frustration and failure regularly occur because we are not getting it straight in terms of what is the right motivation and what is the right methodology. We are aiming generally at the wrong motivation for growth because for the most part, most Christians kind of think that Christianity and growth is about self-improvement and a future reward. And that is not the right motivation. In fact, um, the second issue, of course, with methodology is we rely too much on physical systems for making spiritual change. And that's never going to happen in our lives. Spiritual change does not happen because of, of self-motivated behavioral modification. In fact, the bottom line for most Christians is that we're aiming at correcting the wrong deficiencies. There's only one real deficiency that all of us have, and this is critical for you to understand in terms of your growth. There's only one. It's not academics, although we invest so much of our energy and time in that. It's not athletics, although again we invest so much time. It's not our associations. It's not about economics. It's not rest and relaxation. It's not entertainment. It's not more things. It's not a better job. There's only one deficiency that we have in life, and that is found in Romans 3.23. For we have all sinned and come short 
of the glory of God. That is our one common deficiency throughout all of humanity. And the struggle with, for Christians in terms of growing is if we miss that that is the issue, the issue of the glory of Christ. What does that mean or what does that even look like? The glory of Christ is, is his awesomeness, his weightiness, his, his, his heaviness, his excellence, his exquisite nature. It, it, is, it is demonstrating that God is good and God is great and God is wonderful and God is awesome. The glory of God is when his character and his nature are demonstrated and showing in our lives so that people look at us and say, I don't know what you have, but I want it. That's what growing Christians look like. And that's the one deficiency, the one struggle, showing off the greatness of God. The primary motivating reason to grow is not our self-improvement and is not heaven in the future, although all of that happens. That's not a strong enough motivation. The motivating reason to grow is to showcase the glory of God, whether you eat or whether you, some of you know this verse, do all, are you all afraid of the Bible? Are you afraid you don't know that verse? Because you know it. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatsoever you do, do all of the glory of God. That's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible in terms of Christians to understand their purpose who they are, what they are called to do, what you are empowered to do. The Spirit of God has moved into your life to enable you, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Show off God in everything that you do. God created, by the way, to show off His glory. Do you understand that? I'm not sure we really get that. The triune God needs nothing. Before the universe existed, the triune God existed in eternity and needed nothing. The only reason that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is to showcase who he is, his immense, incredible glory. And any motivation that we have to grow that falls short of that will never get divine traction in our lives. We'll never move forward. We are saved to be repaired so that you and I would no longer make God look bad, but rather make him look good. Now, I want you to get some wheels spinning so as we move into the text this morning. I want you to be thinking about how can I showcase the glory of God in my life? And the second, as I mentioned to you, failure is in the issue of methodology. The primary methodology for growing is simply this, more Jesus and less of me. John the Baptist said it best in John 3.30, I must decrease, he must increase. You combine these two things, the glory of God and more Jesus in me, and you will grow. You will grow. 
I've put these two together in a long sentence with lots of words, and I've come up with this. Growth for a Christian is recalibrating, recalibrating your life for maximum spiritual health and growth must grow from a holy passion to bring glory to God in a healthy environment for growing more Christ in you and me. A huge desire for people to see in you that there is something better available to our broken world. And if you make this about you or for you, you will not grow. Now, God nurtures every action I take for growing more Christ in me so his glory will be seen in all the nations. So how can I get more Jesus in me? That's where we come to the text and what Mark has for us in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to take these three vignettes, take them one at a time, read the text one at a time, and make some comments on them. But it's an encounter here where Jesus um, encounters everything that is wrong with religious people trying to use God to further their own glory. What we call religious knockoffs. There's Herodian, there's a Sadducee, there's a Pharisee or a scribe. And maybe, in fact, just maybe, and kind of hope not, but maybe you will see some things in your own life that have to dramatically change as you look at these lives and recalibrate your heart toward actual spiritual change that grows you. Because that's what we're looking at. So there's three encounters here, as I said, of three religious knockoffs. And Je Jesus clarifies his brand in this section of scripture. Now, um, in order to set up where, where we're at here, the, the backdrop, of course, as Mark continues on, is Jesus has just shared a parable in the verses right before. Whereby uh, it's the story of a landowner and tenants. And of course, the landowner is representative of God, and tenants are representative of us, of people. And in the story, the tenants are trying to steal the, the land from the landowner. If you look around at life, this parable actually sets up an explanation of everything that's going on around us. These people are tenants trying to steal from the landowner. They're trying to steal the field and the fruit, the the stuff that's made there, and they're also, they want the inheritance, so their decision is, if we kill the son of the landowner, then we'll get the inheritance as well. If we kill Jesus, we'll get the inheritance. That explains what's going on in all over our world, our world of people seeking to steal from God what rightly is his, to take claim to the things that God has given to them, and then to boot, to get rid of his son so that they can claim the inheritance for themselves. The truth of the matter is that everything belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And so we have this backdrop and then he encounters these three. And the first is this in verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Notice that. They came to play mind games with Jesus and, of course, they came very unarmed they came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Note that. Our Lord is not confused by anything here that's going on this morning. He knows exactly what you think. He knows exactly how you're acting. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, which is a coin that they use to pay their taxes, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose portrait is this, or literally, whose likeness is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, and they were amazed at him. Let me make a a statement and then uh, let the text bear it out. Religious knockoffs get bogged down in bearing more of the image of the world, while Jesus' brand increasingly reflects the image of God. We're looking for a distinction of who's growing and who isn't, who's Jesus' brand and who's a knockoff. It is related to that. Now, beloved, you know this. When we go back, roll the, the time back to the beginning, it all started out so well. We humans were a special creation of God to represent the image of God. We were unlike the planets, unlike the star, unlike the sun and the moon, unlike the sea, unlike the land, unlike the fish, unlike the animals. We alone were created specially for a purpose. We were created in the likeness of God, in the image of God. We are not animals. We do not function on the basis of instinct. We are a special creation of God, every one of you, made in the image and likeness of God. And our ancestors, Adam and Eve, kicked that to the curb. The glory of God in favor of their own self-image, in favor of their own identity. And we chase after human expectations of image ever since. What we deem to be glorious. Satan lured our ancestors to settle for falling short of the glory of God. That's That's the reality and the nature of humanity. Falling short of the glory of God because of sin. Salvation is the remarkable gift of God to restore to us what has been taken away from us by sin. That we might actually live the way we were created to live. That that the humankind would reflect to the world the amazing glory of God, of the invisible God. We are called to make the invisible God visible through how we live and how we act and how we think and what matters to us, how we behave, what our character is like, what our behavior is like. But we, unfortunately, as Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, are increasingly being pressed into conformity to the image of this world and resisting the image and likeness of God that we're called to and that is the reality of how Christians grow more and more like Christ in the image of Christ. This, we are conforming to the distortion of this world. 
We continue to, in this world, conform to, to, to statements like, my body, my choice. That, for Christians, is anathema. We have been bought with a price, not silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the landowner who has purchased us from the slave market of sin that we might live for his glory. Not my body, my choice. His body, his choice. We've been sold a bill of goods and phrases like love is love. Really? Try this one. Fuel is fuel. Go to Costco after the service and dump diesel in your car and see if that works. Love is not love. God is love. God has, has, has offered to us the reality of what love is and how love is. We're increasingly pressed into the image of this world. Let me ask you, are you giving yourself over to the wrong image? A wrong image that you resemble or prefer most? Busy trying to trip Jesus up in his words so that you can justify your own preferred ways. Because that's what the Herodians were doing. Now, the Herodians were a, a sect of people, a religious sect of people. And I'm guessing their name might give something away to you. Herodians. We are Christians. They were Herodians. Followers of Herod. And they liked Herod, although his ways were unscrupulous, he had just enough of a religious veneer about him to trick people into following him, thinking that he would be a better Messiah and a better buffer for Rome. So the Herodians came to decide if they could get Jesus to buy into their political agenda. Come and follow Herod who's trying to make Israel great again. That's what, they were, that's what they were literally doing here. And so they flattered Jesus. You can read the words there. They really wanted a Messiah replacement with their smooth flattery. But it says here that Jesus understood their hypocrisy. He could see through what they were trying to do. Lavishing layers of schmooze on him. Putting him on the political spot. If he says he's for Caesar, then all of Israel is going to revolt against him. If he says, on the other hand, that, that he's against Caesar, then his end may come in a different way than he was planning and purposing. And so here he is, supposedly in a fix, offending the zealots or offending Rome. They put a full court press on him to force him into their political image. And he turns the tides on them this way. He asks to see a coin. Give me one of those denarius, he says. And he takes the coin in his hand. And here is the Lord of glory holding a denarius in his hands. And he asks the question, whose likeness, whose image is on this coin? Now, what you need to know is that on the flip side of that coin... The flip side where there wasn't the picture said on it, the son of divine Augustus. Here we have the son of the living God 
holding a coin of a Roman emperor calling himself the Son of God. And Jesus asked them standing there, and there were lots of them, and disciples and all around him, and says, whose likeness is this? And they said, Caesar, of course. And he said, then render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God, whose image is on you. Whose likeness do you bear? Whose stamp and imprint is on your life? Whose inscription do do your children read when they look at you? When people examine your life, what do they see in you? Whose image do they see? When Jesus picks up your life and examines it, whose likeness does he see? It's not about right politics, beloved. It's about the right image. Those who grow can be examined by anyone. And the likeness of Jesus Christ is bursting out all over their lives. Well, the Herodian backs off and a Sadducee steps forward. Facebook is full of Sadducees. I'll explain in a moment. Watch for them as I read verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers... The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Unfortunate woman. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And now they're standing around with all their buddies, elbowing each other. (laughs) We got them now. That's a good one. Man, that's a really good one. He really stumped Jesus now. And uh, it's, it's fascinating, you know, what he, how he responds. Are you not completely daft? There's a lot of ways to say this word error. Deceived, foolish, crazy, idiots. You know, they think they've got him, and his response to them immediately is... Are you guys nuts? You're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. By the way, those two are connected. They're always connected. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. You need to know that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either, so Jesus throws that in for for them. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
By the way, the book of Moses was their book. That was their specialty. The five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. In fact, that's all they studied. That's all they believed in. They were experts of the book of Moses. Can you imagine Jesus saying to these experts, have you never read the book of Moses? It's like, ah, it's all turning against us. And then he says, Is he not, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly idiotic, all right? He, he adds a, 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 a forceful adjective onto it, the descriptor. Okay, so uh, the Sadducees are religious knockoffs that don't know the scriptures and therefore have lost connection with the power of God. Jesus' brand, however, know the scriptures and experience the power of God, which are you. This is a move to divide and conquer by undermining the confidence in the word of God. It's interesting here, and you remember I mentioned to you that Facebook is full of Sadducees. There are all kinds of people I notice these days with enough Bible background to play the Bible contradicts itself game. They're always looking for ways to trick God, to trick Jesus, to trick him on his word, if you can imagine, playing mind games with the creator of the universe. In fact, I'm, I'm discovering that those people who are raised in the word but turn from God are often the most toxic. Tragically. And so we have it here, holding the word of God in contempt, making a joke of the word of God, trying to play games with it, trying to use their logic to overpower Jesus. They're flawed, fallen short of the glory of Jesus' logic. They're in error because they don't spend enough time in the scriptures. They're badly mistaken because they've lost connection to the power of God. The two are connected. If you read Moses, he says, you will recognize that long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, God is still calling them their God. I am the God of Abraham, not the God of who was the God of Abraham or was the God of Isaac or was the God of Jacob. I'm the present God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Oh, yeah, the the guys who followed me and are eternally alive. That, that, the guys, you don't believe in the resurrection, but I'm telling you that the God you claim to believe in as experts of the book of Moses calls himself the God, the present God of dead people. So there's something sadly flawed in your logic. And oh, by the way, I'll just throw this in. He throws in the angel thing and says... Uh, with respect to your foolish idea about marriage, there's no need for marriage in heaven because we don't need babies in heaven. People live forever in heaven. We need babies now while people are dying to continue humanity, but there will be no children in heaven. So the way angels are gives us a hint, and eternity is not like the present. Yes, angels. Yes, resurrection. 
Now, um, the Center for um, Bible Engagement did a study in 2009 that only 30% of us who claim to know and love God read our Bibles even once a week. Only 30% of us. That means, 30, that means 70% of us don't read our Bibles once a week, which means we don't even come to church once a week. But for those who do, and for those who take the Scriptures seriously, it has been discovered that for real change to occur in your life, how many are interested in real change taking place in their life? Five of you, that's fantastic. For those of you who are interested in real change taking place in your life and realizing the power of God in your life, because Scripture and the power of God are connected, obedience to the Word of God is how the power of God shapes and changes us, that if you read your Bible at least four times a week, real change will occur. If you read your Bible one time, two times, three times, it does not make any appreciable difference in your life. But it seems to be that the fourth time that you read and more actually results in amazing change in your life. In fact, um, sharing your faith will go up 228%. A holy boldness comes over your life because you know the scriptures. Most of us don't want to share our faith because we're afraid someone will ask us a question that we can't answer. Guess what? There's a solution for that. Find the answers in the Bible. Read your Bibles. Discipling others goes up 231%, Pastor K. Memorizing Scripture goes up 407%. Immorality goes down 68%. Drunkenness goes down 57% from reading Scriptures. You can't experience the power of God if you refuse to obey and know the Word of God. You cannot. Finally, there's a last vignette here. Look at one of the teachers of the law, a scribe. This would be a scribe, a Pharisee who would be a scribe, came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But he still wasn't there. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Here's the last of our vignettes. The lives of religious knockoffs are crowded with many other affections making it impossible to love God with all of their hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And loving their neighbors gets crushed under the many things devoted to loving themselves. Jesus' brand, however, love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor 
as themselves. The Herodian, the Sadducee, and now a scribe steps up as part of this religious piling on Jesus. But this time he had a different heart. And not far from the kingdom heart. He asked the right question. What does God say is the most important? Now think about this, beloved. You're getting the answer from glory itself. You want to know the most important thing in life, the most important commandment? I mean, what is, the mo what is most important in your life? Here it is. Here it is. Jesus combines Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18 with a can't-miss growing approach to life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God like this, listen, if you love God like this, what you like and what you choose will only and always be God's will. And if you love, your, if you love people like this, you will never, ever hurt them. You will only do good and bring them good every day of their lives. Do you see how powerful this is? The exquisite glory of God will reverberate from every pore of your body. The love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, strength, soul, to love your neighbor as yourself. God wants to see that God in your life. When he examines your life and holds it up, and looks at whose image is there, this is what he's looking for. And by the way, this kind of love protects us from legalism. Did you hear what the Pharisee said? You are right, he says. He says to love God like that and love your neighbors like that is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you see how powerful this is? What is legalism? Legalism is trying to do good things to have God love us more. Jesus said that's not how it works. We don't love God so he will love us more. We love God because he loves us. We love him with everything that we have because he loves us with everything that he has. Now, that protects us from legalism. That means that all of our behavior, all of the things that we choose to do just to please him, just to show that we love him, all come from our heart of love. Not to gain any more favor from God. It's not possible. But rather to love him and that his glory might exude from every pore of our body. So that people would look at us and say, I, I don't know what you have, but whatever you have, I want that. says he was close to the kingdom. You can know this. He agreed with Jesus. But Jesus still said to him, you're not far, but you're not there. Knowing this is not enough. Living it is required. You and I stand condemned or justifi justified by our attitude toward God and his word. Will we Apply this to our lives. What are you doing with these words? With God, his word. 
If you um, are confronted with a choice between your own comfort, your own convenience, and your own preferences, or your relationship with Christ, which one do you choose? Those who love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, those who love their neighbor as themselves, choose Christ over convenience every single time. Choose Christ over comfort every single time. Choose Christ over their own preference every single time. That's what it means for Christ to be the most important person in your life. It's the question that was asked. What is the most important? Got it right from his lips. This is the most important. To love me, to love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and body. To love your neighbor as yourself. Does your behavior match what you claim? God nurtures every action we take for growing more Christ in us so his glory will be seen in all the nations. The Herodian came with his personal agenda, and the world is full of that. The church has people with a personal agenda, and they want Jesus to fit into that personal agenda. The Sadducee came with religious entertainment, seeking to make sport of Jesus. There are a lot of people who come to church just for the entertainment value. The Pharisee and the scribe came and wanted God's opinion. There are a lot of people populating our churches who come in Sunday by Sunday interested in God's opinion. But the real Jesus brand people want God. They want Christ. They want more of Christ and less of themselves. They want to love God with all of their mind, soul, body, and strength. If you had the opportunity, and you do, to rewrite your calendar and change everything starting today, that it might reflect that Jesus is the most important person in your life, what changes do you need to make? On your way in, you received a card. Actually, it's two cards with a perforated center. It's a Maximum Impact Discipleship Pledge card. I want you to know that this is simply an opportunity for all of us to just simply examine our hearts. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, test yourselves, examine yourselves, and see if you are in the faith. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. The time is now, beloved Calvary, the time to make Jesus your heart, your strength, your soul, your everything is now. And sometimes we go from a sermon like this and we're like, well, that was, that was a good sermon and that really spoke to my heart. But we have nothing measurable. We have nothing to do. I want to assure you that there's nothing on this card that will change you into a Christian or make you a better Christian. That's the work of God. That's the work of the, the Holy Spirit of God moving in your life. But this gives an opportunity to, to look into the mirror of your life and, and answer some questions. You know, if, if someone were to ask me, is Jesus really the most important person in my life? What, 
what does it look like when I write down how I am concerned about worship or how I'm concerned about my connections, connecting with Christ? How am I concerned about, about uh, sharing my faith or serving the Lord in the church? How am I concerned about, about the, the wonderful uh, physical property that God has given to me? Does, do these things even move my heart at all? We're not asking you to sign these things. We're asking you to do this so that we will understand and you will understand the reason there's two is you're going to keep a copy for yourself that might be in your Bible so that the pledges that you make to the Lord, asking him to strengthen you with a new resolve to by his power make certain changes in your life that reflect what you truly believe. That's what this is all about. We're going to invite you to bring them back over the next several weeks. We'll have something here to collect them in. Just drop them off. This will give us an opportunity to do a real broad health check, spiritual health check of just where we all are at. And I pray, I've prayed, and I ask you to pray that God will, will cause us all to invest in maximum discipleship, maximum impact discipleship. The days are short, beloved. The world is pressing in. There's an opportunity for us to express the great glory of God and see a huge harvest of people come to know Christ in this region. Let's go for it. Father, I pray. I pray with my heart. You know my desire is that these people I love so much, that we would all just buy into the, to what you want for us, Lord, to understand that we have fallen short of the glory of God and our best life right now is to reflect the glory of God and his likeness, <clears throat> that your imprint might be stamped on us so indelibly that everyone around us, our children, our spouse, our, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, would know what is the most important in our life. And in seeing you, Lord, because you are so glorious, and so wonderful and so desirable that if we reflected the glory of God, Lord, we know that people would, would want what we have, would want you. I pray, Father, that you would move our hearts powerfully for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stand together and use this closing song, the lyric of a hymn, as an opportunity to take what the Spirit of God has delivered to our hearts and minds today through His Word and pray back to God, Lord, would you, would you take my life, all of my life, every part of my life, my thoughts, my mind, my resources, and, and Lord, as an act of worship, I give it to you, all to you. Here I am. So this is an opportunity for us just to begin that response to God, and I trust that this will be our prayer. Take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated. Lord, to thee. Let's sing together. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let
That was a dangerous song to sing this morning. It's always a dangerous song. When we ask the Lord to take our lives and consecrate them fully to Him. Maybe you're interested in how this study wound up, the three universities on knockoffs. A professor of Duke University suggests that knockoffs informed the subject's self-signaling the notion that we take cues about who we are from our own behavior, like objective observers of ourselves. So what is your behavior telling you about your relationship with Jesus? I gotta be honest with you that Jesus brand Christians don't treat Sunday like another Saturday. Jesus brand Christians don't go days and weeks on end without connecting with the Lord through his word and through prayer. And Jesus brand Christians don't give Jesus leftovers from their checkbook. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will so grip your life and my life that the world around us will finally see the glory of God. We'll finally see that Jesus Christ is so desirable, so wonderful, so awesome, that they will run to us and beg us to tell them what we have that they need so desperately. I hope you'll take this exercise seriously. Take your heart seriously. These are increasingly challenging days. Growing Christians take their relationship with Christ very, very seriously. Our Father, I pray this morning and thank you for your word, it teaches us, it instructs us. And in our application of your word, we grow. The power of God cooperates with what the word of God says to make it so in our life. Lord, this is our desire to be maximum impact disciples of Christ for your great name's sake and that we may no longer fall short of the glory of God but may express the likeness and image of Christ, the glorious one. For Jesus' sake, I pray. It's his, his name I pray.